Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. My name is Ken Cantrell, if you don't know who I am. Actually, my name is Ken Cantrell, even if you do know who I am. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Oak City Church. Um, Most of you know, we took a break from home groups for a while. We just recently kicked our home groups back off. And so uh, Dan Fitzgerald and I are sort of helping to lead. Actually, we're leading the home groups right now. And so Dan, Jeff, and I have been preaching through a sermon series on home groups. We're in week four. Part of the goal of this series is to make sure that we're all sort of aligned on the vision for home groups and what we're trying to accomplish through them. Part of that alignment is to make sure that we all at least know the definition of a home group. The last week, Jeff asked if anybody knew the definition of a home group. It was a little sad because only one person did, and they had to use their notes, and it was Dan's wife. And so that's, that's not great. So does anybody remember the definition of a home group? Oh, that's, yeah. A group of people committed to one another's spiritual growth. Man, that's good job, man. So... Um, I want to highlight here, again, that a home group is not a building, it's not a Bible study, it's not uh, a house, but it is a group of people committed to one another's spiritual growth. Now, I realize some people, especially if you're visiting, may not have any idea what we're talking about when we talk about a home group. So I want to briefly recap this big idea of home groups. We believe that there's much more to the Christian life than what we're going to get just here on Sundays. Our time of worship and prayer and learning together are really valuable, but they're not enough alone in and of themselves to help us be the Christian community that we're meant to be. The different churches handle this different ways. Here at Oak City Church, one of the things we do is that we supplement our Sundays together by meeting together uh, throughout the week in smaller, we, we call them home group communities. That happens formally, usually once a week as people meet together in someone's house, and it, it's informal Because remember, it's not just a meeting, but it happens, the home group meets informally throughout the week, usually, in terms of breakfast or lunch or text or phone calls or prayer requests and things like that. So I'm going to talk more in the sermon today about the sorts of things that happen in home groups, or at least in healthy home groups, but we've also been talking about the outputs of home groups, what we hope to get from the experience of being in home groups. We've identified four major outputs, and that's how we've been kind of organizing the sermon series. We hope that by being in a home group, we as a church would grow in our understanding of the Bible. So this is what I preached on two weeks ago. Last week, Jeff preached on Christian character, that we hope that by being in home groups as a church, we would become more like Jesus. Today, we're going to talk on pursuing Christian community, and then next week, Dan's going to wrap us up on making Christian disciples. So today, we're going to talk about Christian community. I'm going to do it this way. Uh, we're going to talk through the idea, of the, the idea that we are created for community. And then I hope I'll give a picture of healthy Christian community. And I'll just tell you right now, it is going to be an incomplete picture. Because there are lots of sermons that we could preach on Christian community and what it looks like. But I'm going to at least give you a brief view of that. And then I want to talk about some of the challenges, and we'll spend a fair bit of time there, the challenges of being in a home group and some of the ways that we can respond to those challenges. Before I get into that, though, this is a particularly interesting sermon for me to preach. So I I mentioned that Dan and I are helping to lead the home groups, but I think I spend 
about six and a half hours a day in meetings at work. I counted it up last night. I have, I looked on my monthly calendar, I have one-on-ones with 26 different people a month. Most of those are every week or every two weeks. So I think I'm in somewhere around 40 one-on-ones a month. I am socially exhausted. I'm not an extrovert. And so I come home and the last thing that I want to do is talk to anybody who's not my family. And honestly, I don't even want to talk to my family sometimes when I get home. And so this idea of community, honestly, it's a very challenging one for me because I just don't want to be around people when I come home from work lots of times. And yet I'm convinced that I will never be the man I'm meant to be unless I'm part of a healthy Christian community. I will never understand Jesus or my place in his mission unless I'm in a place where I allow others to comfort me and encourage me and challenge me and pray for me and where I'm expected to do the same thing for them. I said before that I will never understand Jesus the same way I will never understand God the Father the same way that somebody who's been adopted will. That somebody who's been in an abusive family relationship won't see Jesus or God the Father the same way I will with a a loving father in my life. Women will have insights that men just won't naturally start with. Our northern transplants, in addition to raising our house prices, they're going to see faith differently than I do because I grew up in southeast Missouri. I'm, I'm convinced that we need each other. And we're just not going to get all of what we need on Sundays. So I'm, I'm all in on this idea of home groups, even though, frankly, I don't always want to be there. I'm all in, in part, because I believe that we were created for community. I don't think everybody recognizes this, or at least we don't consciously recognize this or admit it. But I don't think you have to look very far to see that this is true. <laughs> uh, 2011 or so, I bought an orange Honda Fit Sport. Now, there's, this may be strange to buy an orange car, but I bought an orange Honda Fit Sport. I was one of the first orange Honda Fit Sport drivers in the area, and maybe one of the first Honda Fit drivers in the area. And I would drive down the road, and people would honk and wave at me if they were driving a Honda Fit. It was odd. It was weird. But people were just, if you can see people seeking to create community even if it's just recognizing that you're driving the same car as somebody else and trying to make a connection. But we try to make connections all sorts of ways. Sports fans and sports teams. We make connections with one another based on people playing sports that we're not playing. I have a friend who is not a believer. His community is ham radio. He feels deep connections to people he hardly ever sees. He's not, never seen most of the people that he has a connection with. But he forms community or tries to form a kind of community with them by talking to them every night. Whether it's CrossFit or F3, we, we try desperately to create community because we're built for it. And you don't have to be a believer, I think, to say, to say that. But a couple weeks ago, last week, I did a search in Google and typed in the word loneliness and told it, just show me articles from the last month or so. This one came up from The Guardian. The title was Loneliness is a National Crisis. There's a way to tackle it. And there, and this wasn't from a Christian perspective, he says, a desire for social connection is fundamentally hardwired into our psychology. And being deprived of it has devastating mental and physical consequences. 
I think he's exactly right. So why? Why is that true? A couple weeks ago when I preached, I started with creation in the garden. That's a really good place to start most sermons. That's where we're going to go again because I think this all starts in the garden. At the very beginning, when God created mankind, we're told, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, theologians differ on exactly what that means. Some people say that this is like a queen saying, let us do this, and she just means her, right? Um, So some people view it as a form of majesty. Some people view it and say that this is God speaking to the rest of the heavenly host, saying, let us make man in our image. I think that one's hard because it would suggest that all the heavenly hosts are made in his image, and that doesn't seem to connect with the rest of Scripture. Most people, the consensus is that this is God as the Holy Trinity in perfect communion with himself saying, let us make man in our image. Let us, in holy community with ourselves, create man in our image designed for community. I buy that. That's exactly how I think it's meant to be interpreted. But even if you don't buy that, you can see through the rest of the ways that we were designed for community with one another. After man was made, God said, Lord said, it is not good the man should be alone. And so Eve was created. We were designed to be in community one with another. And in some way, they were in a connection in a community and a relationship with God that we don't get to be in exactly the same way. It says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which I think would be really cool. But we're designed, we're created to be in relationship with our God and with one another. But the problem is that the fall broke everything. It fundamentally destroyed or damaged our relationships with God and each other. And I think we keep hunting over and over again to try to fill that hole that's left. And the problem is that the only thing that can really fill that hole is a restored relationship with the God who made us, loves us, died for us, and rose again to prove that love. And the world as a whole isn't basing communities, whether it's a ham radio community or a Honda Fit honk at each other community. We're we're not basing our communities on the gospel, and so they aren't solving our problems. We're ending up lonelier than ever, and all you have to do is look at the news to see that's true. The news just screams that there's a loneliness epidemic. We talk about this a lot, so I'm not going to sit on this very long, but when I did that search a couple weeks ago and said, just show me recent articles, there was one from February 6th, San Francisco Chronicle, How Depression, Anxiety, and Loneliness Cut Across the Generations. January 23rd from NPR, Most Americans are lonely and our workplace culture may not be helping. That one begins with, More than three in five Americans are lonely, with more and more people reporting feeling like they're left out, poorly understood, and lacking companionship. February 8th, the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder, Are You Dying from Loneliness? I think our, our world is searching for something and we just, we're struggling to figure out what that is. Now, it's certainly true, I think, that communities not founded on the gospel can't fill the hole that exists. It may also be true that there's people like me that are just burned out and aren't even seeking and trying to create communities. So if that's the case, I think we need to recognize that there is no biblical idea, at least that I can find, of a lone Christian. Last week I used this, or a couple weeks ago, I used this verse. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. So again, it doesn't matter where you're from, how old you are, 
what race you are, what country you're from, anything. If you are a follower of Christ, then all followers of Christ together are baptized into one body. We're made to drink of one spirit. We are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And another similar passage. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, followers of Christ, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, so when all of us are working the way we're supposed to, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. This is, this is it's hard language, but it's great imagery. First off, it gives us a picture of unity, a single body unified in purpose. And after all, we're not going to get very far if our left leg tries to go that way and our right leg has, you know, tries to go that way. So we have to be unified in purpose. But our fingers aren't, aren't going to do any good you know, if they're cut off and they're lying on the floor. So we've got a, unif- a unified purpose and a unified way of looking at this. It all presupposes that we are living and working together in some way. But it also allows for diversity. Fingers don't look like elbows. Noses work differently than toes. So as parts of the body, we're not called to look and act exactly the same way. And that's great. Now, this may not have been your follow-up question when you read this, but it's mine um, because of something I read. Does this matter? Like, why does this matter? I asked because I saw this quote. So I've been reading a book. I started it about a month ago or so called Living into Community, Cultivating Practices That Sustain Us. So a couple things. First off, it's a great book. Um, I'll have more information on it in the notes for the home groups this week if anybody wants to try to get it and read it. Uh, I had almost all the ideas for this sermon before I read the book and then realized that the book said some of them so much better than I did. So I'm quoting a lot from it through the rest of the sermon. But everything kind of went together well. They, she said this, The best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. Jesus risked his reputation and the credibility of his story by tying them to how his followers live and care for one another in community. And I do take a little issue with the quote in that God is sovereign. God is in control. I don't think he's reckless and I don't think he risks anything by, us, by establishing the church. That's what he wanted to do. But when you look at the passage she quotes, which we're going to look at in just a second, it's very clear that he based his reputation and his credibility on the church. This is what Jesus says. So Jesus is praying in front of his disciples and apostles to God. He says, I do not ask for these also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he is praying for us, the current church, because we are the ones who believe in him because of their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. I think that's, that's a pretty amazing message. The quality of our lives together as followers of Christ is meant to be evidence that the gospel story itself is true. The way we love each other demonstrates to the world a sense of God's love. Now, there are 
a lot of sermons that you could preach out of this. Today, I just I want to point out one big thing, though, that there's an assumption in this that we are living closely together enough that our unity and our love for each other can be seen. These are Jesus's words. Paul says a very similar thing. He drives home this idea of oneness. We've been using the book of Philippians as kind of a, a grounding for the whole sermon series. So at the beginning of the book of Philippians, he says, oh, I went too far. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he says the same thing later. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, there's a lot of sermons that you can preach out of this passage. But what I want you to see is that encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, affection, and sympathy, these things don't happen unless we're together. We were created to be in community with each other. Communities founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for us. So what does a healthy community actually look like. I'm going to fly through, through some passages here. Uh, part of what I, we're going to ask you all to do in home groups this week is think about what does a healthy church community look like? And so kind of think through for yourself what do you think a, church, a healthy church community looks like, but just looking through some passages to make a brief view. Sorry. My notes were a little wonky there for a minute. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ. So, I think a healthy home group community, a healthy church group community, is a place where there is encouragement. It's a place where there is comfort. Coming from the idea that we love one another because we are loved by a God that loved us enough to die for us. And that love transforms all of our relationships. Any participation in the Spirit. It's kind of a strange phrase. It, it seems to mean, based on most of the translations I can find, the idea that we are participating together led by the Spirit. So some translations actually just say if there's any fellowship one with another because of the Spirit. So we get an idea of fellowship or participation in the things of God. Any affection and sympathy. So we're, we have affection and sympathy for one another. Unity and purpose, being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. Love for one another, as I've already mentioned. The passage that immediately follows that one says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only, or look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So from here we get a reinforcement of the idea of loving one another. An environment where there is active caring for one another. Where you are cared for, and because you're bearing others' burdens, you're caring for others. From Acts, we see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So here we see that as people come together in a healthy community, there's teaching and fellowship and food. There's something, I don't know, almost magical about food in the Bible. 
Food comes up over and over again in the Bible. And there's something about eating a meal together that breaks down barriers that we just otherwise wouldn't break down. I was having a conversation with somebody not at Oak City, uh, not even a believer, but who's attending their version of home groups. And they, they eat every week. I said, well, what would it be like, like if they didn't eat? He said, I don't know if I'd go. He said, the only way I'm really getting to know these people is the conversations we have around the dinner table. There's just something that happens around food. And then worship and prayer. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read, Let us consider how to stir up another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're back to encouragement, participation, unity and purpose, and fellowship. Acts chapter 2, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So again, we have teaching and fellowship and food and worship and prayer, and I think this one adds in thankfulness. And there's a lot more that we could pull in to paint the picture, but this is an amazing opportunity. If this is what our communities are supposed to be like, who wouldn't want to be in a community like that? So challenges. How do we actually achieve that kind of community? So to answer that, I want to look at some of the challenges that we face and some of the things we can do to overcome those challenges. There's, there's at least two big categories of challenges. There's very, very practical things like what are we going to do with all these kids, right? That is a real problem for a lot of home groups. When are we going to meet? Where are we going to meet? Th- those, that sorts of stuff. Who's going to bring the right food this week? You know, whatever it is. So um, the home group health team spent a lot of time talking through those. We put together kind of a, a, an FAQ or a best practices document that gives a lot of suggestions, not mandates, just suggestions on how to handle some of those practical questions. And so either Dan or I or Tiffany, somebody will send that back out to the home group leaders after the sermon because I don't really want to talk about the practical problems right now. I want to talk about some of the bigger philosophical kind of problems. The practical ones are real problems, though, and and I do get that. So I think the first challenge I want to talk about today is a challenge of committing. So we say that a home group is a group of people committed to one another's spiritual growth. Here's part of the problem with that. This is my life. So Mike and I talk a lot about circles and how the circles in our life don't seem to overlap very much. Neighbors. My neighbors are not people that I work with. I don't go to church with them. Honestly, I'm not friends with most of them. There should be a tiny little overlap there. It's not my extended family. It's not the people my wife does CrossFit with. Like, that overlaps with nothing. My work overlaps with nothing. I don't voluntarily spend time with... Again, it's not quite true. I should probably overlap work and friends just a little bit because there's some there. But what I mean by that, like thinking of friends, I'm thinking of like... Who do I choose voluntarily to spend time with when I'm not at work? That's what I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of friends. I, I, if, if anybody from work is listening to this, it's nothing personal. I just, but, you know, we don't spend time together after work. <laughs> so, um, you know, part of the problem so, is that everybody wants something from you. Take the horse. The horse is in a different color because my daughter is into equestrian studies. She's off at college now uh, doing horse stuff. But before that, um, her horse community, her barn, wanted us to be deeply engaged. They knew that if you're, like, 
in, if you're all in, if you're committed, if you're wrapped up, into, you're more likely to spend money with them. That's kind of cynical, but that's what it was. So they would do things like this. At Halloween, come on. Um, at Halloween, they would have costume parties for horses. And you didn't have to pay to go and do this. You had to pay for other stuff because they knew that, like, getting you in and getting you interested and having the kids love it would make you more likely to come back and pay for lessons later. And again, that's my cynical view. My daughter loved this, so it did exactly what it was supposed to do. But, and so I think this is the problem. Almost all of the circles of our lives are calling out for us to engage with them more deeply, except for my neighbors. We, we just don't have enough time and emotional energy to do that. We can't. You can't dive into all of these circles. We have to make choices. And we have to recognize that committing to something means saying no to something else. And, and I realize this is not rocket science. It's pretty obvious, but I think it's something we really struggle with, especially in an American consumer-oriented economy. FOMO, the fear of missing out, it is a real thing. I actually typed it in last night, again, like Google News. There was an article within the last 24 hours from a psychologist talking about how bad FOMO is for people ages, I think it was 17 to 31, and how many people she counsels because they just can't make a decision because of FOMO. Don't believe me? <laughs> then make the mistake I did and accidentally get signed up to be the person who organizes a potluck, because this is what happened to me at work, and is supposed to get people to sign up in advance. Doesn't happen, at least not anymore, because people are always, seem to be, holding out for something better. We recognize that committing to anything, even like committing to bringing something to a potluck, is going to close the door to something else. Consumer culture tells us that our world is created for our pleasure. We want something when we want it. We don't want to be committed to it when we don't. The community book made this comment, said, while we might want community, it's often community on our terms with easy entrances and exits, lots of choice and support, and minimal responsibilities. And that's a problem for communities. Because in a community, we are inherently dependent on one another. Commitment to each other and the ability to trust that will jointly meet those commitments is a big part of building a stable community. The community book went on to say this. Communities in which we grow and flourish, however, like as opposed to ones where we don't commit, last over time and are built by people who are faithful to one another and committed to a shared purpose. Community life certainly has moments of incredible beauty and intense personal connection, but most of it is daily and ordinary. Our lives are knit together not so much by intense feeling as by shared history, tasks, commitments, stories, and sacrifices. So one of the bad things about being married to me is I force Micah to listen to my sermons beforehand. She gets all of the revisions just about. And when we went over this last night, she said it was okay for me to share this. So when I, when I read this, her comment was, you know, I have, I have two friends. Two, or she has lots of friends, right? But she has two very deep relationships um, that she has built up over the period of years. And she says the reason that I have such a deep friendship with these people is I have committed to that relationship. And one of them, for 20 years now, they've been having dinner together once a week. And she said, it's not hard. It was really hard, like when the kids were smaller. But they've made the commitment to do that. And as a result, they have a very, very deep relationship. The home group health team recognized this. And we spent a fair chunk of time 
discussing the challenges that this creates for home groups, a lack of commitment, and that's part of why we put the committed as part of our definition. So this is what I'm going to suggest. This is something that the home group health team didn't necessarily talk about, but I have, and I've talked about this with Dan and, and Jeff. I'm going to ask that you consider committing to a home group for one year. Now, I know, and, and make it a priority in your life as you do that. Now, I know that there are people who cannot be in a home group. But logistically, because of their care for another person, for example, they just can't be in a home group. And I also want to say very, very clearly, being part of a home group does not make you any more or any less a Christian. It does not make you any more accepted in the eyes of God. And I think in, a, in the church... We have to be very, very careful not to set up some new form of legalism that says there's one class of believers and another class of believers, and, like, you're only the good ones if you're in a home group. Right? I don't want to go there at all. I, I suggest this, though, and I, I push it because I think we are fundamentally healthier when we are in community with one another. And if you can't be in a home group, strongly encourage you to seek out some place that you can be in a community with other believers who will build you up and encourage you and expect you to do the same for them. So if you can be in a home group, though, commit for a year, commit to be present on a regular basis, not just to be on an email list or something like that, and commit to be present as a whole person, not just a bump on a log. Right? And that's hard. And again, not everybody's the same. I'm not saying that every introvert has to be an extrovert and participate in every conversation or has to be there for every breakfast or every child outing or whatever. It's going to look different in every home group and for every person, but commit to being there as a person. It means taking your shared commitment to the health of the group seriously. So that's the first challenge, committing. The response isn't a particularly sexy one, right? But the answer to that is just commit. What's the second challenge that I want to pull out? That's one of realistic expectations. I think one of the greatest frustrations that people have with home groups or churches, church community, is that the community doesn't meet their expectations. And I think it's fair to ask, are the expectations realistic? What are our expectations? I painted a pretty idealistic view of what church life is like. How does it really play out? Like, does it really look like that? I think to start to answer that, it helps to look at the early church and realize that even when the New Testament was being written, within shouting distance of Jesus' life, church communities suffered from sin. I've, I've heard people say, man, if we could just get back to the time of the New Testament, like make a New Testament church, everything would be better. I don't know if they've read their Bible. Because, the letter, like for example, the letter to the church in Corinth was written in part because he heard, Paul, the author, heard that there was quarreling within the church. And so he was trying to stop quarreling and divisions. But that's like the tip of the iceberg. Because in chapter 5 of the same letter, we see that it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. That's a church with some issues. In Galatians, he wrote the letter to the church in Galatia, Because the church was turning away from the gospel. He says, I'm astonished. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In Acts, when the church is just being formed, way at the beginning, there were Greek-speaking Jews, 
and Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews who are followers of Jesus are grumpy because their widows aren't getting a fair distribution of food. And this is just the quick list that I came up with. Here's the deal. The, the Bible paints a really clear picture that just because we've come to accept that Jesus Christ is God-made flesh, that Jesus died for us, that he's the victor over sin and death, that his resurrection confirms our own resurrection, that we've been made spiritually new and that we are a new creation. All of that is true. All of it is true. But none of it means that our lives and our communities are going to be without conflict. This is what Jeff touched on last week when he talked about growth, that we are all growing and we should expect our communities to be growing too. We're not always taught that though. And so many of us have this unrealistic expectation about church life. The community book put it this way. There's always things about a community or congregation that will disappoint us. And because our expectations for the church are high, disappointment and frustration run very deep. And one of the nice things about um, leading my home group is I can make them do what I want. So this week we did not talk about Jeff's sermon on growth. This week we talked about my sermon because I needed, I needed thoughts. So we brainstormed, like, what are the sorts of things that we develop unrealistic expectations about? So when we come into a church or a home group, what are the kind of unrealistic expectations we have? And here's some of what we came up with. An expectation that folks will read and respond to our emails or our texts promptly. That every meeting is going to be awesome. I might even say that most meetings are going to be awesome. And that we'll leave there glad that we came. That the teaching is going to be as good as we see on TV or even as good as we get on Sundays, because Jeff is a fantastic teacher. That our children are going to make this easy on us. <laughs> that, that transformation is going to happen fast. I think a lot of people come into a church, and they're taught that once you're a believer, everything gets better. And so money problems are going to get better, or your suffering and your pain is going to get eased. And honestly, some of this stuff just takes years and years and years and we may never see resolution on them. Folks who kind of have everything together uh, may find that people, other people are just too needy in some way. And people who are needy for valid purposes may find that other people aren't sympathetic and empathetic enough. So here's the deal. Sin wrecks everything. And it's going to keep our communities from being perfect. And remember, so, and I mean this in the most loving way possible, any community that has you and me in it is not going to be perfect. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian in the 1950s, put it this way. He said, the sooner this shock of disillusionment, oh, that's a hard word, disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. I think he's saying that we create a fantasy world where what we, of what we wish was true. And then we compare that to the reality of what we have. We're dissatisfied with that. We find that real life doesn't measure up. And then we tend to destroy the communities that we have. And I didn't read the whole, his whole paper, but I'm pretty sure that we destroy it through bitterness and cynicism and just a general dissatisfaction with life. The community book quoted a pastor named Kevin Raines from Vineyard Church. He put it this way. I love this quote. 
How many times have I fantasized about the perfect fellowship where everyone got along like a perfect family? What this boils down to is spiritual pornography. Creating a mental fantasy of a perfect place or people and not recognizing the good things all around me. This spiritual porn is my nemesis. It's poison. And that got me thinking about the nature of porn. And I think that's really what porn is, right? Porn is about creating a fantasy world that's better than the world we actually live in. It suggests to us that the world that God has created for us is insufficient. And that to be happy, there's something else that we need. And that's what far too often people do with home groups and church communities. We build up a fantasy world that's better than the reality of what we have. We compare it to reality, then we get discouraged, we get unhappy, we give up on what we do have, and then go looking for somewhere else that meets our church requirements. And lots of times that just repeats over and over. So let's be careful. I'm not suggesting that anyone settle. We should not settle. We are called to an amazing fellowship with one another. And I'm not suggesting that if your home group or your church is abusive, if that's true, you need to come talk to me, both as an elder and as a home group leader. If your home group is abusive, come talk to me. But if your home group is massively dysfunctional, if your church or your home group has given up on the gospel, I'm not saying you should stay in those kind of situations. But we do need to be realistic about what to expect and recognize that as individuals we're growing and as communities we're going to be growing into spiritual maturity. Now, the author had this to say. He says, thankfully, the antidote is available and accessible, equal parts of gratitude and affirmation. And that's a pretty scriptural thing. In Ephesians, we see that Paul is telling the churches at Ephesus that they should always be giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not giving thanks when the dinner was great, when the conversations were awesome, when they got the support that they needed, but that they should always always be giving thanks to God the Father for each other. He says in Philippians, and Jeff talked about this last week, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I seriously doubt that Paul was happy with every one of his interactions with the church at Philippi, and yet he still continually brought them up before God. And I think as we reorient our hearts and our minds towards thankfulness, it becomes a a lot easier to deal with the minor, and sometimes not so minor, things that frustrate us. So the challenge is one of realistic expectations. And I think the response to that is just pop that bubble around unrealistic expectations and work to develop gratitude for the lives and the communities that God has given us. So that's one of the things we're going to ask in your home groups this week, is to talk about What realistic and unrealistic expectations do you have about what church life is like? What frustrates you? How, as a home group, can you together develop a sense of thankfulness? What is there to be thankful for? And how can you teach each other each week to think about that and to, to, you know, to pray about that and to be thankful for it? So the band can come back up. Um, The sermon's not quite done because I think if it ended right here, it could be a bit of a downer. But remember, this isn't where the story ends. We are created for community. We, the church, the followers of Christ, are the body of Christ on display for the world to see. We are created for a community. 
that if we get rid of unrealistic expectations, we commit to the idea of being together, we have an opportunity to enjoy, this is Micah's phrase, the sweetness of what is before us. A community that provides encouragement, where there is comfort, where together we are participating in the things of God in our home group, in our church, and in our communities, where we know that we are loved because people treat us as if we are loved, where we have an opportunity to show that love, to bear burdens, to have our burdens cared for, where we are taught to understand who we are and what God, what God would have for us, um, where there's great food, where there's worship and prayer and thankfulness. This is what we're designed for, and it's amazing. It's an amazing opportunity and gift. Will you pray with me? Father and God, you, I say all the time, you love this church more than we do. Your vision for the church is so much bigger than our vision for the church. And your idea of what makes a perfect community is so much bigger than even the picture that I can paint here. I thank you, God, for the church that you've given us. I thank you for the home groups that you've formed. I thank you for the love and the caring that happens here. Thank you for all the times that people come alongside somebody else and support them and build them up. And I pray, God, that you you teach us and give us a, a realistic view of what it means to live life daily over and over and over again, uh, potentially for years with one another. You're a great God. I pray for your spirit to fill and lead our church. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.